everyone has an opinion about just about everything. In many ways, this is completely natural given how many options we have right in front of us. Uh, my brother and his family, they don't live here in the United States, so when they come to visit, one of their favorite places to go is Costco. Uh, why do they love Costco, you ask? Because there are so many different choices. And they could just walk around Costco and look at all of the things and all the different kinds of bread and all the different kinds of chips and so on and so on and so on. And, and they don't live in a third world country. They live in Switzerland. But they don't have as many choices as we have here in the United States. So naturally, we need to have opinions. Um, we have to be able to compare things to survive in a country with so many choices. I mean, for example, if someone were to ask you to go to the store and buy them bread, well, how many follow-up questions would you have to ask? What kind of bread? Is there a certain brand? Does it need to be gluten-free? Do you want it with rice flour? Do you want buns? Do you want a loaf? Like, what are we talking about here? All I wanted was bread. And, and let's be honest, too. Like, you have never had such an audience for your opinion as you do right now. We have the opportunity to speak into almost any issue or any idea or any cultural phenomenon that we want to. Maybe we can use Facebook to do that, but there, there are websites, places where we can give our review on something, maybe somewhere that we've uh, had dinner or somewhere that we've stayed or somewhere that we drove by. We can give our opinions about anything. More on this in a moment. So, Bread is one thing, having an opinion about what kind of bread you want, but the stakes are significantly raised when it comes to talking about someone's way of life or how they think that life should be lived. When way of life gets involved and someone feels like their worldview or the way that they live is being threatened, then you better watch out. Now, we have seen this materialize in all sorts of weird ways. For example, uh, the movie Captain Marvel, which is a Marvel movie, came out in 2019. And the movie was the first Marvel movie to feature a woman as the central character and main hero within the Marvel Universe. Now, for some reason, this was threatening to a certain segment of the population. So they did something that is called review bombing, which means that before the movie ever came out, weeks before it ever came out, they went en masse to the movie review site Rotten Tomatoes, and they gave the movie the lowest possible rating. So like a month before anyone could even see it, they went on there, and they made sure that it looked like the movie was terrible because they didn't want people to go and see it. So consequently, the website Rotten Tomatoes had to go in and change their rating system so that people couldn't get into rate movies too early and do this sort of rating bombing. It got to be so it got to be so bad that they had to do this. And and while this move sort of helped even out the ratings, the week before it went into theaters, the movie had Captain Marvel had 4,461 10 ratings and 9,000 or 4,943 one ratings. And 
this was a result or a showing that was not found in any other Marvel movies. So basically, before the movie ever came out, people were either giving it a 10 or were giving it a 1. Now, those who gave it a 1 labeled it as a social justice warrior, meaning that it was promoting some sort of left-wing and liberal agenda. They complained that it promoted a feminist agenda, and they were complaining that the movie was simply trying to be politically correct and was not a movie that we wanted. Why? Well, because a woman was the main character. Oh, we have opinions, my friends. We have lots of thoughts about lots of different things. And if we perceive that something threatens our way of life or worldview, these are polarizing times where often you are not given the option of being at one point somewhere in the spectrum between one and ten. There is only one or there is only ten. And none of the other numbers seem to have any meaning. Now, Paul was writing to a group of people that consisted of different ethnic groups, people from different backgrounds. They had come from all of these different places. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. They were Christians living in a pagan world, which means they were surrounded by all kinds of practices and things that didn't match up with the worldview that they believed they needed to have in Jesus. And we have to remember that the church in Rome didn't really have a model for what it meant to be a church and to live out the Christian life. Uh, There wasn't a New Testament. There were no Gospels. There weren't any churches really even close by for them to model themselves on. So, So mainly the church was made up of people who at one point in time had encountered the Gospel and the message of Jesus, and they had taken it back to Rome, and then they had started this community. And it was a community that didn't have a lot of of guidelines or understanding of how to live. So life was somewhat complicated and messy in the church in Rome. And Paul knew that in different ways they had fallen into the comparison game. Uh, This is better than that. This kind of person is better than that kind of person. The person who does this is better than the person who does that. And on and on and on it goes. So Paul had to take them back to the basics. And they had already accepted Jesus, so theoretically they knew that God loved them and and they knew that Jesus had died for them. But he had to take them back to a different point, a, a different starting point besides just God loves you and Jesus died for you. He had to redefine for them what it means to be human. There's a statement that I adopted a long time ago. And it came out of specific circumstances, which I might share with you later. But the statement is this. Now, I want you to just consider what I'm saying and consider what you think about it and whether you agree or disagree or any of those things. But here is the statement. You ready? Anyone is capable of anything at any time. Say it one more time. Anyone is capable of anything at any time. Now, I understand that this may be a very uncomfortable statement because it might challenge how you see yourself or your place in the world or who you think you are and what you're about. So I just want you to chew on that this morning. Anyone is capable of anything at any time. So Paul has to redefine what this church understands humanity to be about. 
So where does he start? Well, he starts in a, a very simple place, something that, that we know and have heard before, and here it is. Sin is a real-world problem, and there is not an excuse for it. This morning, we're going to be in the last part of Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn over there. Romans chapter 1, we're going to start in verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Okay, so Paul starts at this very simple place, that God is angry and he has a right to be so. His wrath is being revealed against all of those who have denied him his place as the God of all creation. This is the basis for all of the sin that we might address or see within this passage. The rejection of God, the denial of God, putting something else in his place. And Paul wants to make a key point about all of this. And, and the key point is this. He wants to say, one cannot simply say that they didn't know any better, that they, they didn't have opportunity to see or to hear or to understand because there is no excuse. God has clearly made himself known. His eternal power, his divine nature are clear for everyone to see. Therefore, whoever has denied God his place has done so willfully and purposefully. You do not accidentally ignore God. Now, this is a hard opening to a difficult set of verses. If you remember where Paul was at the beginning of chapter 1, he was complimenting them and thanking God for them and saying all of these things. But here he, he lays this out about sort of the state of the world and, and, and what, what people are doing. But Paul is trying here to set the foundation for what he is about to say, that they do not reject God by accident, those who reject him. They do it on purpose, and there are consequences for that rejection, and the consequences are God's wrath. Secondly, the next thing that he moves on to is this. Wisdom is the gateway to rationalizing this rejection of God. From verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. 
Okay, so he's building on what he previously said. And so he starts this out with, they knew God, but they chose not to glorify him or give thanks to him. And, and, and the rationale behind their doing this was uh, this concept of wisdom, that they were wise and um, knew what to do, and it was this concept of their own wisdom that led them down this road. How many times must they have said that they did not believe in an all-powerful God? That such belief was, was quaint or a crutch for the weak. They thought they knew better, understood more, did not need this God. It was not wisdom, Paul says, that they exhibited, but it was foolishness. Wisdom, this wisdom led them to exchanging God for other things. And these other things that they exchanged him from were completely pointless. The images or likeness of humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. So the rejection of God and the elevation of anything else we understand to be idolatry. It's, it's putting something else in God's place. But even if they had not made these figures to worship, they had already committed idolatry by elevating their wisdom and thereby elevating themselves above God. They thought they knew better. And therefore, they put something else in God's place. Number three, when God is rejected out of wisdom, he lets go, which leads to the freedom that humanity so dearly wants. And this is God's wrath. We see this in Romans chapter 1, 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, there's something really interesting here that maybe you've never considered before. And that is the nature of what God's wrath actually is. In this case, God's wrath is not a punishment for the sin that was committed by them. Instead, it is a reaction. God saw and understood their rejection, and consequently, he let them go. God's wrath was not a punishment, although it really kind of is. It's an abandonment. They have rejected him so they can live however they want, indulging whatever they want. This moral degradation, then, all these things that happen within them, is a consequence of God's wrath, not the reason for it. When God withdraws and he lets them go their own way, they can have whatever they want, and they do whatever they want. 
The NIV SB note on uh, verse 124 says, God allowed sin to run its course as an act of judgment. He lets them go. So divine judgment is God, in this case, permitting people to go their own way and to have whatever they want. And this is one of the worst things that could ever happen to them. This abandonment extended to the body because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He, he gave them over to their passions. What was natural, he says, was exchanged for what was unnatural. Now, we need to note that these words about homosexuality would have hit differently depending on if the reader was a Jew or a Gentile during this time. The Greco-Roman society of Paul's day tolerated homosexuality with considerable ease. Among some advocates, in fact, homosexuality was viewed as superior to heterosexuality. One scholar noted that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Now, in Jewish culture, it was very different because homosexuality was regarded as an abomination. One scholar commented that no feature of pagan society filled the Jew with greater loathing than the toleration or admiration of homosexual practices. Remember that early in chapter 1, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, some translations translate the word that Paul uses as Greeks as instead of barbarians. And so this would have fit right in with the Jewish way of thinking that because they practiced these things sexually, they were barbarians, they were lost. It was completely revolting and an abomination. This is an accurate description of how the Jews would have seen this Greek practice and maybe even have allowed some of that to rub off on their Greek brothers and sisters who were now Christians. But the overarching thing that we need to pull from this verse, and we'll hit some of this other stuff later, but the, the main thing is that it is not a good thing that God allows them to have this much freedom. Because when they have this much freedom, there is a heavy price to pay. What's the price? Well, the freedom further leads to more creative sin where it is not enough to simply reject God. God lets their minds go. And with that release, they move as far away from God as was possible. From verses 28 through 32. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are, for, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. 
Now, there's another big idea here. It is the idea that once God let their minds go, they came up with new ways to live in opposition to God. The normal ways of sinning against God were simply not enough for them. They had to find a way to completely live their lives in opposition to what God had envisioned. So not only do they do all sorts of wicked things, perhaps the most striking detail describes the things that they don't do or do not have. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Those those four things that are listed there, they are all qualities of God, you see. And since they have rejected God and been given free reign, they cannot embody any of those positive things. They are completely and absolutely morally, spiritually, emotionally bankrupt. Of course, it would not matter to them because they have completely and thoroughly rejected God. But it's importantly that Paul established just how awful they are. Now, if you are the readers of this letter when it first comes out and you're hearing all this talk about uh, how these people are and what they do and what they're like and how they've rejected God, how are you feeling at this point? I mean, Paul, all these things that he wrote, he believes them to be true. But I have a secret for you. That whole argument, everything he just described was a setup. It was. It was a setup for the people that were reading this letter. And he knew that they would buy into all of it because it echoed their own worldview. My guess is that you have probably fallen for it as well. And he uses two words to carry out this trick. The words are them and they. Who is them and they? Well, to the reader, them and they was anyone that was not them. It was those who were not Christians. It was those who did not know God. It was all of those who had rejected God and sinned and done all these different things. And here's where the trick is, is that Paul wanted his readers to, to, to see and hear those words and to be disgusted with them and they. He wanted his readers to feel righteous in comparison to them and they. He, he wanted his reader to judge and to judge harshly those who have so fully rejected God, them and they. He wanted his reader to believe, ultimately, that them and they had no place at the table with those who believe in Jesus. Why did he want them to think that? Well, because he's about to flip the table on them. And there's a precedent for Paul's approach. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, David had sinned greatly against God. He had committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to cover it up by bringing her husband Uriah back from war and trying to get him to sleep with her, which he wouldn't do. So he sent Uriah back to the front lines and had him killed. Not a good moment. 
And in spite of all those things that David had done, he did not see how far away from God he actually was. So God sent Nathan the prophet to speak to David, and David told him a story from 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 7. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him, and his children had shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. I've always wondered at that exclamation, you are the man, and what David's face must have looked like when he realized who he was in the story. He was not the defender of the weak. He was not the right hand of God. He was nothing more than a rich and powerful man who victimized someone lesser than him and didn't even blink. But Nathan needed Paul to see the injustice of the story before Paul could be convicted of his own sin. Paul needed his readers to be furious and angry with them and they. He needed them to dive deeply into that conviction and judgment so that he could say to them what he needs to say next. And here is what he says. If you have judged them and they, you have sinned just as much as them and they have. In fact, you are probably worse. Worse than the most awful people that Paul could practically describe? I did not see this coming. He flips the script by using one important word, though. He switches from them and they to you. From Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you a mere human being passed judgment on them and yet do the same things do you think you will escape God's judgment or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Holy smokes. How many times can he use you in one paragraph? He changed 
them and they to you. All of this anger they had worked up, all this righteous indignation, the head shaking about how awful them and they are, the wringing of their hands, wishing the world was different and that them and they would change and be just like these people who love God. And Paul says, none of those feelings are righteous or of God. You who judge are in the same boat. You are the one who has no excuse, just like everyone else, for the way that you have chosen self over God. And by setting yourself apart over these people, you are worse than them. You're worse than them. Because you are supposed to know how much God has to put up with to be in relationship with you. The truth is, you see, there is no them and they. There really isn't even a you. There is just us, God's creation. And none of us has an excuse for the way that we have sinned against God. And even though you may recognize that you've sinned against God, it doesn't make you better than those who haven't seen it yet. Paul puts this entire argument much more succinctly in Romans chapter 3 where he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But before he could get there, he had to deconstruct how these Christians understood themselves in relation to God and the world. That is what this is really all about. He needed everyone who heard these words to understand that as humans, we are all the same, that no one is better than another. And he needs them to understand this. He needs us to understand this because he's not going to get very far in how he's trying to help them understand how to live out the gospel in the world if he cannot get his readers to set aside their presuppositions about themselves, the world, and God. This realization puts all that we read in chapter 1 into a new light. Because you see... These passages are not about naming wrongs as much as it is establishing the fact that everyone has rejected God and everyone continues to reject God in some way. So I want to get back to some of the controversial part of this chapter. Many people have gone back to take sections of chapter 1 to speak specifically about homosexuality and to say that homosexuality is an especially wrong kind of sin. But if you try to use Romans chapter 1 to prove that, you are taking the verse out of context. Yes, Paul lists homosexuality as a sin. But Paul is making the greater point that everyone is wrong and therefore no one has a leg to stand on. So if you are using any of these verses to single someone out and compare them to yourself, then you are misusing them because that was not Paul's point. What was Paul's point? Well, let's go back to our conclusions 
the things that we said this was about. Number one, sin is a real problem in the world and there is no excuse for it. Not from anyone. Number two, wisdom is the gateway to rationalizing our sin. This is the big problem, wisdom. You see, our thinking we are wise, thinking that we know better. And this ultimately is idolatry and an elevation of ourselves to a place of importance, displacing God from his position. When God is rejected out of wisdom, he lets go, which leads to the freedom that humanity so dearly wants. But this freedom is not a good thing. It leads to more creative sin where it is not enough to simply reject God. God lets their minds go, and with that release, they move as far away from God as possible. But if you are to judge them and they, you have sinned just as much as them or they, and perhaps worse. Now listen, Paul is going to continue to address morality. He's going to continue to address how we live uh, in this world and what Christians should look like and what they should do. But the foundation that he has to set is that no one is better than anyone else. And why does he have to set this foundation? Why does he have to break humanity down to its most base point? I think it's just for one really simple reason. The easiest thing in the world to do is to look at someone different than you and to think that they are wrong, that you would never do what they do, and that you are better than them. But the gospel does not start with Jew or Gentile. It does not start at good or bad. It does not start at deserving or undeserving. It does not start at better or worse. Instead, the gospel is so powerful because it always starts in the same place, that no matter who you are, no matter what you have or haven't done, you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And praise God that he has sent you that Savior. So how do we understand ourselves in the world? How do we understand ourselves in relation to God? It's why I've adopted that phrase. Anyone can do anything at any time. Now, there was a time in my life where I wouldn't have agreed with that phrase, where I would have thought it's an overreach, it's an overstatement, where I would have said to myself, well, I would never do this or I would never do that. But the place where I learned that that phrase was the most true was when I was at the very depth of my depression, where I was thinking things and feeling things that I never thought I would feel before. Where I took myself to the emergency room and sat across from an older lady who thought I was completely nuts because I was crying and rocking in the chair I was sitting in. It was in the hospital where they told me it would probably good idea, be a good idea for me to spend a couple of days by myself. And it was in the mental hospital that I rode in an ambulance to and spent two days in where I heard the stories of what people had been through and how their life had been. 
where I talked with people who couldn't walk outside and who were afraid of so much, people who had problems with drugs or abuse or so many different things. And I was there with them. I was one of them. And it helped me realize that anyone is capable of anything at any time. And praise God that maybe you or I haven't been put in situations where we've had to make some of the choices or do some of the things that these other people have had to deal with. But here's what that idea has done for me. It has allowed me to be more graceful in this world. Because instead of encountering someone who has done something that I haven't done or haven't experienced, or instead of sitting back and looking at how someone who's different than me or thinks different than me is wrong or bad or I can't believe that they did this or that or who they are. Instead, this understanding that all of us are in the same place has allowed me to extend grace in a real way to people that honestly I don't know if I would have before because I'm no longer comparing them to me. Look, I know how messed up I am. I know how much God has to put up with in order to be in relationship with me. I know that we all are in the same boat. We are all sinners. No one is righteous. No one is better. We are all dependent on the grace of God. And as those who have been forgiven and loved who have been shown kindness and mercy and goodness through Jesus Christ, we should be the most graceful, the most filled with compassion and mercy to a world that may be rejecting God, but to a world that still needs him more than anything else because they need the love and the grace and the mercy that Jesus has to offer.